All right, good morning, church. Missed most of the month of June, but it's good to be home. Uh, in the meantime, while I was away, got a name change. It's now Mr. Frankino to you. <laughs> Always wanted to be a mister, so that's nice. Um, we uh, got Mary Jill and I down in uh, Northern California, Rana, but close. Um, yeah, that's good. She liked it and she put a ring on it. Come on. Um, so we, after we got married, we suffered for Jesus in Hawaii for a week. And then we traveled up the Alaska-Canada Highway in a different climate. When we got here, uh, we found it to be dry, hot, and the forest was on fire. So Jill, the Californian, feels right at home. Uh, so that's great. We're glad that we can make that transition smooth for her. But we just wanted to say thank you to all of my, now our church family, uh, for the way that you guys in a million ways have supported us, prayed for us, come alongside of us. That's why we want to celebrate next Sunday here in the afternoon uh, with some lawn games and food, just getting to know uh, Jill and uh, myself, if you don't know me. Um, we uh, just are so thankful and excited about entering into community as husband and wife with this body of believers as we're making disciples uh, for his glory. So thank you for that. And, and we're back. We're going back into our series. We call him the King of Kings, where we're seeing the true King God and his work through three human kings. We've been looking at Saul. David came onto the scene last chapter, and then we'll eventually get to Solomon. To recap where we are, remember back in 1 Samuel 8, Israel asked for a king. They said, we want a king just like all the other nations. We don't trust God to be our king. We want a human we can see and touch. So he gives them Saul. And remember that word, the Hebrew word was Shaul of their Shaal. He was the choice of the people's choosing, the tall, dark, handsome man that was impressive to their eyeballs. But then we see that Saul fails miserably. And because of that, his kingdom will be removed and God replaces him with David, who was anointed as king, came onto the scene last chapter in 1 Samuel 16 as the man after God's own Heart, or really after God's own choosing, might be the better translation. This is God's guy. And so we put him in onto the scene. And, and we're going to see, due to Saul's lack of faith and obedience in his God, he first of all loses his kingly line. His sons won't be kings. Then he loses his own throne. And eventually we saw that he loses his own mind. But in the process, God strategically moves David into place. Remember, he was the little boy playing on the harp, right? The lyre, an ancient guitar. When, when God sends this spirit to torment Saul, David's the one chosen to come soothe him. And God is lining up his chess pieces, David getting acquainted with Saul, being brought into position in the palace, gaining military experience. It's all part of God's plan. Now, last chapter, we saw David playing on this ancient guitar for Saul, but it's going to be today, the story of David and Goliath, that he becomes the true rock star. Get it? Okay. That went over better in this service, if you'd imagine. <laughs> You're all probably familiar with the story of David and Goliath, right? This is, this is Sunday school flannel graph Hall of Fame material. If you've been in church, you know the story. But what can happen is the familiarity with that story can cause us to kind of fall into this rut and lose some of what God's trying to teach us. And I think sometimes we get left of center of what the true moral of this story is as we gloss over some of the details. What often is presented is this simplistic moral of be courageous like David and slay the giants in your life. 
show bravery and, and what, who are the giants that you need to defeat. But what I think we'll see this morning is there's a different and more important takeaway. And if we don't know the truth unfolded in 1 Samuel 17, we will not find victory in our lives. We will not find life. We will not find joy. We will not find peace. So we want to open the word together this morning. But first, let's say a short prayer here. God, we just pray that by your mercies, you would open the eyes of our heart to see wonderful things in your word. And we pray that you would allow our hearts to receive those truths and then our feet to walk in obedience in those truths, embracing Jesus as our all in all. It's in his beautiful name we pray. Amen. We're going to actually see this morning that David encounters three giants. You're familiar with one of them, but there'll be two more that we're going to point out. The first one is this giant of defiance. Um, first, uh, we're in 1 Samuel 17. We're going to be in the New Living Translation this morning. It's an easier read. We're doing a lot of ground covering here today. Verse 1 says, the Philistines now mustered their army for battle. Now remember, the Philistines should be wiped out. This was God. He said, I want you to drive out the Philistines, but because of Saul's lack of obedience, they're still there. In fact, they're stronger than ever. Verse 3, the Philistines and Israelites faced each other on opposite hills with the valley between them. This was the valley of Elah, according to verse 2. So you see this staring contest between Israel on one mountain peak and the Philistines on another one. And it's going to be out of this that one of the most familiar villains in the Bible appears. Verse 4. Then Goliath, a Philistine champion from Gath, came out of the Philistine ranks to face the forces of Israel. He was over nine feet tall. The Hebrew says actually he was probably nine foot nine. Now that's a tall bro. The National Basketball Association, where we accumulate the tallest people on planet Earth, and give them a lot of money. The tallest they've ever seen is a man named Manute Bull and another one named George Murison. They were seven foot seven. So this guy is over two feet taller than both of them. Currently on planet Earth today, there's a man from Turkey who's eight foot two, and he's the tallest living human being. Saul was a, a foot and seven inches taller than that. So you get the picture. Dude's a freak. Verse 6, verse 5, excuse me, he wore a bronze helmet and his bronze coat of mail weighed 125 pounds. So he's tall, but he's also got a lot of armor on. In fact, his coat of mail is about the size of a junior hire attached to his chest, right? He's got a lot going on here. And now notice it says a coat of mail. This word can be translated scales. And it can also be used when referring to a fish or a snake. A coat of scales. And in fact, not only a coat of scales, it's a bronze coat of snail scales. The word bronze here in the Hebrew is nehoshet, which could also be, it's very similar to the word nehesh, which is the word for snake. The picture being painted here by the Hebrew author is that there is a bronze serpent speaking lies to the Israelites. Let's tuck that one away. We'll come back. Verse 6, he also wore bronze leg armor and he carried a bronze javelin on his shoulder. The shaft of his spear was as heavy and thick as a weaver's beam. So all you weavers out there are now totally tracking with this parallel. Ah, yes, a weaver's beam. Uh, tipped with an iron spearhead that weighed 15 pounds. So just the tip of his spear is, uh, is 15 pounds. He's got a kettlebell on the edge of this huge stick. The dude is massive. His armor bearer walked ahead of him carrying a shield, which is probably no small shield. You get the picture. The dude is large. Again, when we're looking at appearance, 
Goliath looks impressive, looks intimidating, just like Saul, the king of their choice, tall, dark, and handsome, would have looked. And by his appearance, it looked as if no one would be able to beat him. And then this is Goliath's word to the Israelites. Verse 8, Goliath stood and shouted a taunt across to the Israelites. Why are you all coming out to fight? He called. I'm the Philistine champion. You are only the servants of Saul. Choose one man to come down here and fight me. If he kills me, then we will be your slaves. But if I kill him, you will be our slaves. So he says instead of the whole team playing the whole team, we're going schoolyard. We're going to go one-on-one and it's going to be a winner-take-all scenario. Verse 10, I defy the armies of Israel today. Send me a man who will fight me. Bring it on. When Saul and the Israelites heard this, verse 11, they were terrified and deeply shaken. And it's sort of hard to blame them. Here you have our first giant, the giant of defiance, calling out Israel. And he didn't just do this once. Verse 16, for 40 days, every morning and evening, 40 days and 40 nights, The Philistine champion strutted in front of the Israelite army. There's a peacock here in the camp. And he says, I'm calling you out, you and your God. I'm not afraid of you. Me and my gods are stronger than you and your God. That's our first giant in our story. Second giant, the giant of discouragement. Follow along, verse 17. One day Jesse said to David, take this basket of roasted grain and these ten loaves of bread and carry them quickly to your brothers and give these ten cuts of cheese to their captain. See how your brothers are getting along and bring back a report on how they are doing. So David appears on the scene again. Remember, he's already been anointed as king. And he's already been playing the liar for Saul to soothe him. But now we see him re-enter the story as his dad says, I want you to go and see your older three brothers. I want you to bring some cheese and crackers. And I want you to find out how they're doing in battle, which is a fair question to see if my boys are still alive. And so David comes with this little basket of goodies. And this is what he says, verse 26. David asked the soldier standing nearby, what will a man get for killing this Philistine and ending his defiance of Israel? Who is this pagan Philistine anyway that he's allowed to defy the armies of the living God? David goes, wait a second. Where does this giant get off defying my people and my God? The word here in the New Living says pagan. The ESV, or maybe your translation, uses the word uncircumcised. This uncircumcised Philistine against the armies of the living God. Now what David is doing here is he is recalling and standing on the promises of God. This isn't some random war. When we stick it into context of our story, what did God promise the people of Israel? It will be from you that I'm going to bless all nations with a deliverer. But I'm also going to give you this land that you're going to dwell in forever, the land of Canaan. That was a problem. There were some squatters on their land, all these enemies that they needed to drive out. And he said, I promise you, I will drive them out if you walk in obedience and faith with me. So there was already a promised victory here for the people of Israel. David is simply claiming the promise that's already his. He didn't wake up today and decide randomly, I think I'll defeat a giant and I'll just get God in my hip pocket here to do my bidding. He's standing on a promise that God had already given his people. The uncircumcised Philistine, that word means they're outside of the covenant of God. The the circumcision was the covenant that God made with his people Israel. And he's saying "This this is a man from one of the pagan uncircumcised nations that God has already told us he'll drive out for us. 
And this is so important for us as, as believers that we don't just go around presuming God to be a genie in our, in our pocket that we just rub the lamp anytime we want what we want. And that God comes out of the genie, of the bottle, the lamp, whatever it is, and he gives us health, wealth, and happiness. And we say thank you very much. We stand on the promises that he's given us in his word like David. And we have many brothers and sisters. He has promised us in Christ. We have peace with God today. The enemy's already been driven out. We have been made right in his sight, Romans 5.1. He says we have everything we need for life and godliness. That's a pretty good deal. He says there's nothing that will ever separate you from the love of God. I will never leave you nor forsake you. There are specific promises that we can claim as we too march into battle. This is what David does. It's what we're called to do. And then verse 28, we're going to encounter our second tall man, our second giant. Verse 28, when David's oldest brother, Eliab, heard David talking to the men, he was angry. What are you doing around here anyway, he demanded. What about those few sheep you're supposed to be taking care of? I know about your pride and deceit. You just want to see the battle. David goes, man, what have I done now? I was only asking a question. Poor David, right? Classic youngest sibling. I remember my little brother, he was just that annoying little tag-along until we became buddies in college. And I was always going, Mom, Jeremy's hanging around me and my buddies again. You know, get him out of here. And Jeremy's like, what did I do now? That's how he sounded. That's how he still sounds. Oh, buddy. And he's not in church today, so what's he going to do? Um... (laughs) Eliab, he goes, man, why did you leave your little lamb club and come here to check out the battle? You're just rubbernecking, right? You just want to see the action. And Eliab, remember, he's the oldest brother. And there was that scene that we read of when when Samuel comes to anoint one of Jesse's sons. Eliab was the first. And what did he say? It's not, not the one God chose. He said, don't look on the outward appearance. Look at the heart. Eliab was like Saul, like Goliath. He was tall and he was impressive, physically. But God goes, I'm not into that. I'm looking at the heart. And here we see Eliab's heart exposed. He discourages David from pursuing a very legitimate question. Why can this pagan uncircumcised Philistine defy my God and enter into what God had called him to? But David is not discouraged despite his brother's words. And this little innocent question makes its way up the game of telephone to Saul himself, our third tall man, our third giant in the story, the giant of doubt. Verse 31, then David's question was reported to King Saul and the king sent for him. I want to talk to this guy. Don't worry about this Philistine, David told him. I'll go fight him. He, he squeaks. I'll go get him. Don't be ridiculous, Saul replied. There's no way you can fight this Philistine and possibly win. You're a boy. And he's been a man of war since his youth. He goes, you may not be, we don't know, he might have been around 15 years old. May have been all the way through puberty. You think you're going to beat this champion of the Philistines? You're kidding me. Now, David here, he encounters three tall men or three giants, right? Sports fans will get that. We saw the the giant of defiance in Goliath defying his God. We saw the the giant of discouragement, his brother. And then we see here the giant of doubt, Saul going, no, you can't. No, you can't. God is not scared of tall humans. (laughs) Our God sees things differently than we see things. 
How does Israel see things in this story? They're afraid. Verse 24, as soon as the Israelite army saw him, when they look, walk by sight, and see the nine-foot-nine freak, they begin to run away. And you can understand that, right? Why, on a human level, they would be afraid. You remember when the, Canaanite, when the Israelites were entering into Canaan? What happened? They send 12 spies, and what do they see? Giants. And 10 of the 12 are doing the same thing that Israel's doing here. It was only Joshua and Caleb who said, we can do this. No, 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 check that. God can do this. He's bigger than any man, any other power in the known universe. So what gives David this courage, this, this faith that the other army, this, this, these, these grown men who are soldiers don't have? Well, he tells Saul in the next verses, verse 34, David persisted. I've been taking care of my father's sheep and goats, he said. When a lion or a bear comes to steal a lamb from the flock, I go after it with a club and rescue the lamb from its mouth. If the animal turns on me, I catch it by the jaw and club it to death. Fifteen years old. Most fifteen-year-olds are playing Xbox and drinking Mountain Dew. This guy is clubbing lions. This is insane. I have done this to both lions and bears, and I'll do this to the pagan Philistine too, for he's defied the armies of the living God. And here it is. Here's the kicker. The Lord who rescued me from the claws of the lion and the bear will rescue me from this Philistine, because we know his promise to drive these people out. Now, I just drove the Alcan. Jill and I saw fifteen bear on the way up from the comfort and protection of our Ford Escape. Thank you, Jesus. See one of those on your way to the, to the bathroom in the middle of the night. It's a different story. Bears are scary. And here he goes, I don't care if it's a bear, a lion, or a nine-foot-nine champion. I know the power of my God. Now, what's David saying here? David is a man who's walked with his God. David is a man who has experienced the personal presence and power of God in his life before, out in the fields with the sheep being delivered from monsters and giants much bigger than he was. He knows his God. And here's why. When when you walk by faith, this is what's going to happen. People will come alongside who are walking by sight, and there will be giants who try to discourage, who throw doubt and defiance against you and your God. They will say, there is no God. Science has already proved there is no God. Or they'll say, if there is a God, how could a good God ever let you go through the suffering that you're currently walking through? And this is why, if we don't walk with our God, if we do not experience spending time with Him, getting to know His sheep-protecting ways, then we will never survive. There's no way without abiding and delighting in the presence of our good God that we can stand against the giants. Hudson Taylor said it this way, all God's giants have actually been weak men and women who did great things for God. Why? Not because of how tall they were, not because of how strong they were, but because they reckoned on his being with them. Do you reckon on your God being with you? Do you cling to your king Spend time getting to know your God's heart for you and experiencing his faithfulness in your life. 
the only way we can stand firm. We see three giants here, and then finally we're going to see the giant deliverer or the giant crusher. Now, it's not going to be who you think it is. You think it's David. You'd be wrong. Verse 41, Goliath walked out toward David with his shield bearer ahead of him, sneering in contempt at this ruddy faced boy. Now remember that word ruddy, it could mean like a redhead, right? Or, or a very good-looking young man. And when, da- when Goliath sees eyes of, eyes of sight, when he sees David's stature, he laughs. Are you kidding me? I told you to send out your best to go one-on-one. He's got in his mind like Thor or Aquaman. And who comes walking along? Jewish Justin Bieber. He goes, I'm not scared of this little kid, right? He still has pimples. Bring it on. Goliath sees like the world sees. But let me tell you, brothers and sisters, our battle's not against flesh and blood. And here's what happens. He says to him, you come in at, am I a dog, he roared at David, that you come at me with a stick? Remember, David rejects Saul's armor. He says, I got, I'm good, I got my shepherd's staff, the stick that he refers to, and a little sling with five stones. He cursed David by the names of his gods. Come over here and I'll give you your flesh to the birds and the wild animals, Goliath yelled. Now this little teenage redhead gives one amazing pre-giant slang speech and it leaves no doubt where the glory and honor and power reside. Listen to the words of this teenager. David replied to the Philistine, you come to me with sword, spear, javelin, but I come to you something even stronger in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Today, the Lord will conquer you. Here's some promise words based on God's promises. And I will kill you and cut off your head. And then I will give the bodies of your men to the birds and wild animals, turning Goliath's words on their head, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. And everyone assembled here will know that the Lord rescues his people, but not with sword and spear. This battle is the Lord's, and he will give you to us. See, it would not be Saul, who probably should have been the one out there, taller than everybody else, not the, not the man that the people thought would be impressive. The, choo- the choice of their choosing. This is the man of God's choosing. But listen, let's, let's make no mistake. This is not David who wins the battle. And he even says it in his speech. It's the Lord's battle. It's not about me. God could send anything out there. He could send out an inanimate object and it would be able to defeat Goliath. In fact, that happens when the Ark of the Covenant goes into enemy territory earlier in Samuel and knocks Goliath's God's head, Dagon. He falls down face first and his head comes off just like Goliath does. I don't need you or anyone to win the battle. David is here for one reason. He says it's to defend the honor of his king And man, am I that zealous for the name of my God? I mean, you know how it is. Someone messes with somebody that you care about. Someone crosses a family member or my new wife. Right? Got to answer to thunder and lightning. Don't get caught in the storm. Right? That's what... (laughs) I got you, baby. (laughs) She's not impressed. (laughs) Dude, in general. Um, Do I... (laughs) Do I have that same passion for my God to defend his glory and honor? Not because my God needs me to do that. He's not insecure. He's not weak. But out of a love for him, do I know him like my 
my, like David knew his God? Do I live to honor his name? Now the action sequence, verse 48. As Goliath moved closer to the attack, David quickly ran out to meet him, reaching into his shepherd's bag and taking out a stone. And you know the story. He hurled it with his sling and hit the Philistine in the forehead. The stone sank in. Goliath stumbled and fell face down on the ground, just like Dagon. We become what we worship. Verse 50. So David triumphed over the Philistine with only a sling and a stone, for he had no sword. Then David ran over and pulled Goliath's sword from its sheath, and just like he promised, he used it to kill him and cut off his head. And just like that, the battle's over. <laughs> and victory is won in a way that only God could receive the glory. Now, it's so important that we see each of these stories in their greater context of the redemption story, the story of history, his story. See, this battle did not begin back in Elah with the Israelites and the Philistines. It didn't begin with this giant covered in bronze scales. But it started all the way back in the garden where there was good versus evil. We see another serpent covered in scales, taunting with lies and ushering death. But what happens after Adam and Eve fall? God makes a promise, didn't he? He made a promise that we need to cling to today just as much as Adam and Eve did. He said in Genesis 3, 15, I will put enmity, hostility, between you and the woman, the serpent is who he's talking to, and the woman, and between your offspring, all that comes from evil, and her offspring, this seed, this promised deliverer. And here's what's going to happen. He will bruise or crush, the Hebrew is, your head, and you will bruise his heel. It's a promise given to Adam and Eve, that a seed will come and crush the head of the serpent, defeating sin and death that they brought on themselves. Now here again in this story, there's someone from the snake's team, a bronze serpent with scales, again attacking with taunts and lies and threatening with death, just like in the garden. And they go, where's the promised seed? God, you said you would send someone. How long, O oh Lord, till you deliver us from our enemies? And what happens? Saul tries to dress David in his armor that looked just like the enemies, the scales. But David isn't on the snake's team, is he? He rejects Saul's armor. He says, I don't come to you with armor and weapons and sword and spear. I come in the name of my God and in his ways. And what a cool picture that we see here. Just like was promised back in the garden, the snake's head will be crushed. And what does he do with a stone? He crushes the head of the bronze serpent as the warrior falls to the ground eating dust just like the serpent was cursed to do. Now is David the seed? Is he the deliverer? Like is this, the, is this that promise coming to fruition? It's not. It's still a shadow pointing toward the one that would come. That's not David, but he sure does come from David's lineage. Turn to the New Testament, and the first words we read are this. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of who? The son of David. The son of Abraham. It will be one who comes from David's line, David's root, as we'll sing later. Luke 1 says the same thing. This, this man who comes from David's line, he'll be great, and he'll be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. These kings are pointing toward the one true king who will come and reign for eternity. He's the true deliverer. 
And we see some really cool parallels here in these stories. Here you have David, who in last chapter gets, he receives the Holy Spirit, the true power in him. And then what's he doing here? He goes into the wilderness where for 40 days and 40 nights he hears what? The temptations and lies of the enemy before he crushes the head of the serpent. When our Savior came and he's baptized, he receives the Holy Spirit and he goes into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights hearing the taunts of the serpent... He resists him by the power and promise of God's word and eventually crushes that serpent's head. David is a beautiful picture of our Savior. Now, where else have we seen this bronze serpent before? That's familiar language, isn't it? You go back to Numbers, what happens? The people of Israel are in the wilderness. They're getting bit by snakes and dying. And what does God tell Moses to do? He says, I want you to stick this bronze serpent up high and anyone who looks at it will live. And then John in chapter 3 makes this explicitly clear what that's pointing toward. This bronze serpent, the Nehesh Nehoshet, another one comes and, and just, he says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And all who look to him will be delivered from the poison coursing through their veins of sin and death. Now you say, wait a second, the bronze serpent represented evil. Why would they equate the bronze serpent with with Jesus? He's good, and he is. But How did Jesus conquer the serpent? By becoming the curse, by becoming the bronze serpent himself. Second Corinthians 5, for God made him who had no sin, Jesus was perfect, he had no sin, to be sin, to become sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus cursed as everyone who hangs on the tree. So Jesus, he is lifted up and receives, he bears the wrath of God for all sin of all time, paying the penalty, becoming cursed, the one who had no sin becomes sin so that we might go free, Amen. This is what our Savior did for us, became the curse so that we might be given his righteousness. You see, Jesus is our true David. He defeated sin and death on our behalf. And just like David and Goliath were a one-on-one battle that representatively gave victory to the people, Jesus goes one-on-one with evil, but that victory goes to all of us in Christ. So here's the moral of the story. Here's how I want to wrap this up. The moral, again, we cannot reduce it to be brave like David and fight your giants. Who are the giants that you're called to slay in your life? That's simplistic. And it's moralistic, and I think we can go deeper than that. What's the context here? God is staying true to his promises. He has promised to Israel to keep her safe in the promised land, to give her rest in the land. I will drive out the enemies if you stand in my victory. And then from you will come this snake head crusher who will bring blessing and life to all mankind. This is God being faithful. David is not the hero of this story. He's the vessel that the true hero uses. We see God time and time again in Scripture purposely using the weak. It's the small shepherd boy, not the tall men, that he uses so that we know who the one is whom is strong. So that we know who to give the glory to. Listen, you and I are not David in this story, as cool as it would be to to play him in in the play. You and I are Israel. 
right? We're King Saul and his men going, run away! We're the cowards in the corner who are terrified of the giant. In fact, it's the giant in us, sin and death, that's the problem in the first place. We're the ones who needed rescued. You ever tried to defeat sin and death on your own? It doesn't work. You try to stop sinning in your own power, you just keep sinning more, is what Romans 7 says. Try to defeat death, there's no way. It's appointed each of us once to die, unless someone defeats sin and death for us. And just like David defeated that giant, Jesus came and defeated sin and death for me and for you. So, what does that call us to? Passivity? Do we just stand there going, sweet, game over, we'll just sing worship songs till we die? No, what does this look like? Well, look at, again, the parallels here. Israel, look at what Israel does. At the after, it says, when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they turned and ran. Uh-oh, giants down, we gotta go. Verse 52, then the men of Israel and Judah gave a great shout of triumph. David has won the battle for us and rushed after the Philistines, chasing them as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron. The bodies of the dead and wounded Philistines were strewn all along the road from Sharaim as far as Gath and Ekron. Then the Israelite army returned and plundered the deserted Philistine camp. Promise was if, if David wins, then we get the rest of the army. So they simply take what has already been given to them through David's victory, and they get the booty. It's a good deal. You and I are not called as believers to passivity. We are called to be strong and courageous like David, but not in our own strength. Look at Ephesians chapter 6. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, not your strength, his. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, just faith his righteousness, his peace, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. Make no bones about it. There is a battle warring, uh, waging today and having done all to stand firm. Doesn't say go get ground. You've already been given the rest in Canaan. You stand in the victory of Jesus. Well, this, what does this look like? First John 5. For everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world. If you're born of God, if you're a believer... You've already overcome the world. How? And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. What we're called to as believers is to simply believe and claim what Jesus has already won for us. So we're not called to passivity. We are called to action. We are called to battle. But it's only based on Jesus' finished work. He already defeated sin and death for us. And now we simply stand in that victory, courageously fighting the battle won for us. We're just claiming what's already given to us. I like the way Jerry Vine sums it up. We don't fight for victory in the Christian life. We fight from victory. Jesus already won it. The battle's done. Sin is defeated. Death has been stripped of its fangs. And all we have left to do is embrace that because we're still, in, a, we're still on, in process, right? No one here is loving perfectly. No one here is, is, is saying no to sin perfectly. We are very much still in battle. But the same way we were saved initially is the same way that we grow each step of the way, claiming the victory that our David has already won for us. I love the words of the hymn, and we'll be done. Martin Luther penned this quite a while ago, but it's true today. A mighty fortress is our God. Here are these beautiful words. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, make no mistake, there are still, the, the, the evil lies still rage today. And maybe you're experiencing discouragement or doubt, a defiance of your God coming from within your own heart or the mouths of others. It says, even though this is true, we will not fear. Why? For God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. 
It was his purpose and plan to defeat sin and death for us, and he already has. The prince of darkness, grim. We tremble not for him. He's real, but we don't have to be afraid. Why? His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. We, are, we read Revelation, right? Jason read it earlier. We know the tongues and tribes will sing, and Satan will be cast in the lake of fire. Sin and death are done. One little word shall fell him. It wasn't David's stone that fell the giant, was it? It was the one little word, the promise of our God. And that word became flesh and dwelt among us. The seed, the deliverer, the true David defeats sin on our behalf, crushing the serpent's head. And it's because of his victory that I don't have to sin anymore. It's because of his victory that I don't have to face ultimate death and separation from my God. It's because of his victory that I can love and make disciples and bear fruit that glorifies my God. It's his victory, and therefore he gets all the glory. Amen? Father God, we thank you. We thank you so much for what Jesus has done. Because I know my heart. I'm a coward like Saul and his men. We know, Lord, by sight this world is freaky. There's a lot of things to tremble at. And the battle rages. Father, that's why we need the eyes of faith to see not just that a battle to be won is possible, but that in Christ it's already happened. And he rose from the dead. And as sure as our Jesus is alive, we have victory standing in him today. And I ask for anybody in this room that has not stepped into that victory and claimed Christ's life for their cursed sin, that they might walk into that today know you. And for my fellow brothers and sisters that are struggling with discouragement, that are struggling with doubt, that are struggling with defiance, that they might lay those giants down at the foot of the cross knowing that they already have had their heads crushed by Jesus. And we can stand in his victory today. Because he lives, we can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. And like David, we can simply claim the victory that he's already given us. We come to you today just asking for the grace to trust you more, to stand in the victory that has already been given us in Jesus. It's in his victorious, giant, slaying name that we pray. Amen.